Hi, welcome to the Newberry Chronicles. I'm Michael. And I'm Rebecca. And this is a podcast where two readers go through every Newberry medal winning book and then talk about them, sometimes at great length. Um, this time, we're going to be talking about 1977's medal winner, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, which is written by Mildred Delois-Taylor. Mildred D. Taylor, uh, but I'm looking at her middle name, and I'm mm-hmm. not sure how to pronounce it. It's a cool-looking last name. Yeah. Middle name. Middle name. Yeah, so Mildred D. Taylor, not to be confused with Mildred F. Taylor. Who's that? It says... For the American politician from New York, see Mildred F. Taylor. Boo, I say boo American so, politicians from New York. Very few good ones. <laughs> so Mildred Taylor was born on September 13th, 1943, so she just turned 79. Um, she's still living today. She was born in Jackson, Mississippi. She was the great-granddaughter of a former slave who was the son of an African Indian woman, African Native American woman, um, and a white landowner. She moved to Toledo as a child and graduated from the University of Toledo in 1965. After that, she spent two years with the Peace Corps in Ethiopia. She later earned her master's in journalism at the University of Colorado, where she created a black studies program as a member of the Black Student Alliance, and she still lives in Colorado today. Um, So Mildred Taylor is famous for... All of the children's books that she wrote about the Logan family, her most popular is Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, which we're obviously talking about today. Um, These books are semi-autobiographical. They are about, um, so a little bit about her past, which she was born in Mississippi, um, and her great-grandparents bought land in Mississippi at the turn of the century. Her father and his siblings all grew up in this family home, and um, they they later moved away, but every single year they would bring back their children, and she was one of those children. So Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, and all the books about the Logan family, um, they span from slavery to um, the Jim Crow South, and they are based on oral history that was told to Mildred by her father and her uncles and her aunt. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about how she uh, came to finish Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, Um, but all of her uh, contributions to children's literature and and specifically writing about the the Logan family, excuse me, um, because of all of that, she was awarded the NSK, I think you pronounce it Neustadt Prize for Children's Literature in 2003. Um, So when she wrote Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, which Michael will give that synopsis in a little bit, she she was actually editing for a tax firm, and she would write in the evenings and on the weekends. She was living in L.A. at that time, and she had two chapters left to write, and she just felt really stuck. She had to come back to Toledo to take care of her parents. Her dad was ill, um, and there were some other things going on with her mom. So she came back, and she was actually... Doing laundry in the basement was the thing that she says in her foreword. And this song came to her, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. What are you doing? I was just grabbing the book because I wanted to look at something, but... Oh, I was going to read the lyrics of the song. Oh, I'm sorry. This is a very uh, poor time for me to grab the book to look up something. I'm sorry. Yes. So anyway, um, I... (laughs) should have had it turned to that. I've thrown Rebecca off, but... Uh, I promise you that she is more well-prepared than okay, I am no. for this book. But anyway, so these these lyrics came to her. And they're, Roll of thunder, hear my cry, over the water, by and by. Old man coming down the line, whip in hand, to beat me down, but I ain't going to let him turn me round. So this song came to her. And when that song came to her, she knew how she needed to finish the book. She also told... Her father, that when that song came to her, she had the vision that she 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 just knew that she was going to win the Newbery Medal by writing this book. Um, and her father didn't even know what that award was, and so when she told him about it, you know, he was just so happy, thought that that would be so nice. Um, why are you laughing? <laughs> because it's funny to me. It's like 
That's Dad, real nice. Honey. Dad, I'm gonna win this amazing no. prestigious award for children's literature. He's like, oh, good for you, I honey. I think <laughs> it's sweet. It's very sweet. And what is sad is her dad did not live to see her finish this book or um, win the medal. But he died eight months after they had that conversation. Six months after that, this book was published. And then um, four months later, she won the medal. So um, anyway, that's just a little bit about Mildred Taylor. But now you can have the book back to look up what you were going to look Oh, thank you. Um, I (laughs) don't know if I'm going to look it up now because... I now have to give the plot summary to this book, which is going to be like intellectually taxing because of all the books that we've read so far on this podcast, I think it's fair to say that this has the most complicated plot, Mm -hmm. um, which is not really a bad thing, but there's a lot going on here. And so uh, I'm probably going to have to, you know, use all my like mental energy to make sure that I get all this straight. So, uh, and it all makes sense to readers. Um, But honestly, if you haven't read the book, it might be a little bit uh, jumbled because it's one of these books where there's all sorts of different parallel plot lines. And at first it kind of is like almost episodic and then they all converge at at the climax. And so all these like episodic things build up to what eventually happens. So it makes it kind of hard to summarize because a lot of the stuff is scattered at first, but I'll do my best. So like Rebecca said, this is kind of semi based on, um, Mildred Taylor's family's history. Uh, And as Rebecca said, uh, that her family actually owned land um, in the Jim Crow South, which was obviously unusual at the time. Um, And so the Logan family that this focuses on, um, they own some land, right? And so our protagonist is Cassie, uh, who is, I think, nine years old. Yeah, she's nine years old, and she's Cassie Logan, so... Uh, she's one of four kids in the Logan family. There's her older brother, Stacy, um, and then there's Christopher John, her younger brother, and then her other little brother, Little Man. I don't know. Does he have an actual name besides Little Man? I don't think so. Well, I hope that's I actually his, does, his first and middle name is Little Man. We don't usually hear him say that, but her um, her great uncle actually went by Little Man. That's what they called him. So okay. She, yeah. Yeah. So... At any rate, so uh, it mostly focuses on Cassie's experiences when she's nine, like over the course of several months, it seems like, um, as her family who has land is starting to face uh, financial hardships uh, that might cause them to lose the land. Um, And this is important because the land used to belong to the Grangers, who in the uh, antebellum South were slave owners, and this was a plantation, but after Reconstruction, uh, I I don't remember the reason, um, but the Logan family is able to buy a small parcel of the plantation and actually own the land, and so that's been like a thorn in the side of the Granger family for now like a couple generations, and so they're always trying to get this land back. Um, And uh, the Logan family obviously wants to hold on to the land because uh, it's their only source of wealth. They are farmers, and uh, specifically cotton farmers, I think, right? That's their only crop, is mm-hmm. cotton. Um, and so they are, they have to keep the land because it's their livelihood. Um, and uh, in fact, it is a small enough piece of land that actually the dad has to go on the off-season work for the railroads. And so um, Cassie's dad is kind of in and out of the story because he's oftentimes leaving to go work on the railroad again um, when there's not like stuff to be done actively on the farm so that they can continue to have income. But uh, the plot kind kind of focuses on Cassie's experiences, like I mentioned, when she's nine. Um, another thing to know is that her mom is a school teacher for the local um, black school, like, you know, most of the South at this time, like uh, this rural Mississippi community is segregated um, on all strata of society, but especially with schools. And so there's the very nice and very, like, on-the-nose named Jefferson Davis High uh, School, which is the white kid's school. And then there is um, the the black school where her mom teaches, which doesn't get good resources. And, in fact, gives hand-me-down resources from the Jefferson Davis School. And those resources are, like, racist and not giving good history because it's, of course, coming from Jefferson Davis. Like And are also in such poor condition that they say in the front of the books that... They are poor conditions, so it goes to the Negro children. 
Right, like these are only hand-me-downs because the white kids are done with them. And then even when they do get them, they're not like amazing textbooks anyway. And the mom has to like tell the real history that's not like glorifying the Confederate South and, uh, you know, justifying slavery and all this sort of stuff. Um, in addition to the Logan kids, there's another kid who goes to their school whose name is TJ, who comes from a family that does not own property and most of the other black characters in this book do not own property they're mostly sharecroppers who are sharecropping for one of the major white landowning families in the area um and so um tj is coming from a less uh financially secure and just kind of less stable household in general and so he kind of gets into scrapes and is a little bit more like um of a like live wire and he starts having trouble at school um, because he's failing tests and stuff. And he is friends with Stacy, um, and he keeps trying to get Stacy to get his mom's answers so that TJ can cheat and pass his tests. Um, but Stacy will not do that. And so this is like an escalating conflict um, that happens. And eventually what happens is that TJ basically gets kicked out of school because he's caught cheating and it's more complicated than that but that's like basically the gist of it and so you have that thread with tj um simultaneously and again i'm sorry this is that this is uh jumbled but you simultaneously have the logan family talking with um this nice white lawyer who is sympathetic to the the like you know um black cause at this time and this lawyer's name is Mr. Jameson, and he is trying to help them legally secure their property so it won't be unjustly taken by um, the Grangers. When uh, the grandmother dies, right? Right, yeah, because the they need to be sure that ownership of the property passes through the family line rather than being put up for auction or, like, you know, nefarious ways of, like, snatching it out from under them. Um, at the same time, uh, there is also another family called the Sims, and they are a white family, not as powerful as, like, let's say the Grangers uh, or the Wallaces are another white family who owns the local store. Um, and the Sims go to Jefferson Davis School. Is it like an... Is it a one-room schoolhouse? Like, I, I want to say Jefferson Davis High School, but it's not a high school we're talking about. No, it's a, and none of them are one-room schoolhouses. Well, because the black, they have different classrooms. Do they? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they have different teachers. Okay. Well, regardless, um, the Sims go to the, the, to the local white school, but one of the kids, um, whose name is Jeremy, um, is, like, he's nice, right? And so he starts to befriend the, um, the, the Logan kids because they kind of walk the same path to go to school. Um, even though they go to different schools, they kind of share a path for a while. Um, and so Jeremy starts to being able to fill in the Logan kids about like what some of the white families are saying about the black families. Uh, and uh, again, at the same time, <laughs> like I said, lots of parallel plots. Um, the local fam black families who are sharecropping are starting to have increasing financial strain because as is the case with sharecropping, uh, turns out it's kind of a scam. You can never get out from uh, debt from the person that you're working for, right? Because you're loaned all this money by the landowner to um, get the seed and get the tools and stuff to grow your crop, and then you have to give them a portion of your crop back. Um, but also... It's kind of like a company town situation where the white landowners also own the local store, the Wallace's store, and they are driving up prices so that they can get the rest of the black people's money um, that they don't already get from collecting their loans from the sharecropping families. Uh, and so the Wallace's, who are one of the other landowning families, own the local general store um, and are really squeezing financially the, the sharecropping families. And so... Cassie's mom, Mrs. Logan, begins to uh, do a boycott of the general store where she's uh, driving to the next town over to get groceries at a, a, the, the non-exploitative non rate and then bringing them back to the families to sell. But what really motivated them to do that boycott was not just their injustice of how they're, they're treating the black families, but because they had burned that one family's land and and that remember 
that that yes. is kind of the inciting incident, that there's basically an attempted murder of a right. black family because they were falsely accused of something. And so they're not only powerful, but they're... These guys are like in the KKK and They're stuff, inciting like, violence. And, right. Um, yeah, so I, that's just an important... Yeah, and there's so many point. details that I'm having to skate over because, again, like there's a lot going on. And so I'm explaining all these like the most significant parallel stories because here's what ends up happening by the end of the story is this. When TJ gets kicked out of school, he uh, falls in socially with uh, Jeremy Sims's older brothers um, who are like basically doing the whole like middle school thing where you'll pretend to be friends with somebody, but then behind your back, you're like kind of chuckling like how much they dislike you and how much they're able to manipulate you and stuff like that. Um, but TJ thinks that, like, oh, the black families I was with have kicked me out of their school, but these white families are welcoming me. Um, and eventually, uh, TJ and these other kids who are kind of up to no good decide to rob a store because the store has, like, a gun that they want to go to use. Um, and so in the process of robbing the store, the, the store owners um, get killed. And it's a little ambiguous, like, how they get killed. Um, but regardless, they get killed. And, of course... It's TJ who gets the blame for this because he's black and they've killed a white, uh, you know, a white store owner. And the white kids don't really get the heat for any of this. And so the white families, this is like the the, the match that lights the powder keg, right? Because there's already all these tensions because there's the boycott going on. There is the Grangers who want the property back from the Logans. There is um, uh, all sorts of stuff. Oh, I have also forgotten... Uh, when TJ gets kicked out of school, he goes and gets the uh, the Wallaces um, after he's friends with the Sims. So he has some of the some ends with the white folks. Um, he goes and gets them to get uh, Cassie's mom, Mrs. Logan, fired from her job. So that puts increasing financial pressure on the Logans. Um, so that's going on as well. Um, and so there's the boycott. There's all these things that have increased the tensions among like the wealthy former plantation owners, current sharecropping owner, they're not sharecropping, but like uh, landowners, uh, and the sharecropping families plus the Logans, who are kind of like the, you know, financial anchor, anchor of the black community. Um, and be, when TJ is uh, involved in this robbery that results in the deaths of the, uh, the white family, this uh, causes all hell to break loose and the whites um, become intent on a lynching, right? They're going to go kill TJ um, because, you know, in their eyes, this is like, you know, the black people are getting out of line. We have to put them in their place. And now we've been given the kind of barest framework of legal justification to, you know, basically institute a, a, a terrorist attack, you know? So you have like the Ku Klux Klan gets... Um, involved, um, which has already been involved, but, like, they're, like, actively involved in, they're about to kill this this poor kid who's, like, 12 or 13, and uh, in order to stop the lynching, you have, like, Mr. Jameson, who is kind of trying to stop them from doing that, but he's he's unsuccessful at doing that because there's just one of him, and so um, Mi Mr. Logan, Cassie's dad, ends up setting his own crops on fire because he knows that because it's adjacent land to uh, the Grangers, that his crops being on fire are a danger to their crops. And so they have to all act as a community to put out the fire. And in the subsequent delay of the lynching, they're able to kind of like whisk TJ away and have him like held in a jail cell rather than like being, you know, held by a vigilante mob. Um, and by the end of the book, it's implied that like, uh, he's either going to be in jail for life or he's going to be lynched at a later time when they can get him in jail. Um, so that's kind of how the book ends. And I have spent a long time summarizing this book and have not hit everything, but that's like the basic gist of the yeah. arc of it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, I'm, I'm sorry at how long and jumbled that was, but, uh, there's a lot going on in this book. Yeah. Um, Rebecca, what'd you like about this book? I liked a lot of things about this book. I don't know that we mentioned this is our first time, but both of us of reading this book. I was familiar with it, you know, because it's very popular, you know. It's, it's really on, commonly assigned in schools. Yeah. I, like, I remember that at least. Yeah, but, you know, I, I just had never read it. Um, so, I really 
liked, I was really glad that this book included the original foreword that Mildred Taylor wrote um, when, when this was first published, so you get to hear her story. And then in the, in the copy that we read, there's also a letter that she wrote afterwards kind of explaining who inspired which characters, and there's like pictures of her family. Yeah, and it's actually kind of cool. Yeah, and it, it put a lot of it in um, perspective. So what I really liked, the reason why I mentioned that, is I just, there is so much power in um, telling your own narrative especially in a situation like this where written history or records would have been unreliable. Um, you know, she's the great-granddaughter of, of slaves. You know, those birth histories, those birthdays, those, those records are, are not going to be reliable. So she's taking the stories of her, her great-grandparents and her grandfather and her parents and aunts and uncles and weaving this beautiful story of the Logans and... Um, she had this beautiful quote in her um, foreword where she said, I began to visualize all the family who had once owned, who had once known the land, and I felt as if I knew them too. So I just think there's so much power in that, in um, telling your own story and the story of your family and giving them life that then um, can inspire and educate so many others. So I just I will loved say- that autobiographical piece of it. To jump in, there are scenes in this book in which the adults are doing the same for Cassie. Like, right. you get, like, chapters in this book where the mom or the grandmother is saying, like, here's our family history or here's the history of, like, this this uh, surrounding neighborhood. And, like, that, uh, that like, you know, scene in which they get the, the white people's textbooks and see all these, like, you know, woefully inaccurate Mm -hmm. summaries of like the the like history of the area or just the history of the united states like it's like like you're saying it's a counterpoint right Mm -hmm. like the history as told Mm -hmm. by the people in power is not reliable and so you have oral history that fills in like what is left out which is something that is so relevant to right now when we're talking about what is taught in school like arguments that are happening over textbooks, especially for history, but also with literature. I mean, like, if you're paying attention at all, this this is a, a hot topic right now, and it's so important. And I've heard so many of my Black friends say, there's what we learned in school, and then there's what we learned at home. And so th- to, I just think this book is so relevant um, to every single generation. And what I really appreciate about this book is it is written by a black woman in her perspective and in the perspective of her family where the stories of white people are not centered and that race relations are not, I mean, whitewashed. There's many layers to that term, but um, they, I just, they're nuanced, don't get me wrong, but they don't boil down to what you so often read in books where in slavery, Um, or in the Jim Crow South, there are good white people and there are bad white people and their stories are centered. Um, And and everything kind of revolves around that. And I think that this is important for for so many people, but I'm I'm just speaking as a white woman. It's important for me to read these stories. One, because I, you know, Racism is not something that is is so far removed from where we are now. I think when when those white stories are centered and it's here's the good white people and here's the bad white people, it's easy to find yourself as a good white person and not to really grapple with the complexities of race relations. And I, I just, I think it's so important. So I think that she does that really well. Two characters in particular where I think we really see this happen which you mentioned this in your plot summary, but Jeremy Sims, he clearly likes the Logans and he dislikes his family. You know, he is an outcast in his family. I want to say that he is beaten if they find out that he associates with them. Like there's one scene in which he comes to the Logans' home and the dad's like, does your dad know you're here? And he's like, no. He's like, well, then you should go home, shouldn't you? And there is definitely like he he's he clearly wants to align himself with the Logans, but he can never fully do that. Um, And 
those boundaries are just so clearly drawn. And I think this is something like as, as a white child, it, it can be hard to understand as a white person in general, but especially in, in the heart of a child. But something that, you know, I've definitely had to learn is that being kind does not necessarily earn you a seat at the table, that that trust has to be built and you might never fully be included into a particular circle. And that doesn't make someone else racist. It It's a means of protection and it's a response to years of racism and discrimination. And I think another another place that we see this is in um, the relationship with Mr. Jameson, their family lawyer. He's clearly an ally. Um, that's clear throughout the book, but that relationship is always purely professional, and you can tell that it always will be. Right. Um, Although he does help with to save TJ. Right. He does help. That's what I mean, but it's, it's you know, it's here's what he's there to do, and he's going to fight what's right, but... It, you know, he's... Yeah. There, are, there are definitely times in which, like, he knows where the boundaries of where it's acceptable for him to do what he's doing right. for white people, and he doesn't cross those boundaries right. either. Like, where he'll say, like, well, this is bad, like, this, is, this thing is happening, but I don't know what I can do. And the Logans trust him, but not fully. Like, he's not in their inner circle. You know, they understand at the end of the day, this is a powerful white man who is an ally to us and is helping us, but that's kind of where it stops, you know, right. like he's not going to be there for Thanksgiving, you know, at their table. Right. And in he's, a way he can't because right. it being, because it's a segregated society and specifically yes. a segregated society that is enforced by white terrorism, like for him to, for him to become like socially involved with black families would mean for him to lose his seat of power. Like mm-hmm. he could no longer be a ally in a seat of power if he is to become like that as Mm -hmm. well, like that's like, I think another like small thread in the book, but is like in a segregated society in which like there's like punitive action taken, not Mm -hmm. just against the black families, but against like the people who would help black families. That is a way of reinforcing segregation, reinforcing these Mm -hmm. kind of like norms of you can't, you cannot, trust or or you know there are barriers to there being just kind of like casual social threads right and this this black community understands that deeply we also see that happen with tj and so he is befriending these powerful white boys and you know the whole community is i not only don't trust tj i especially don't trust him when he is a friend with these white boys and so what we find out is that when they need a scapegoat, TJ is going to be that. And everyone else wants to distance themselves from that. And so I just, I think that is not a story I have read often. And that happens time and time and time again. So I just appreciated that um, that, that we're hearing Mildred's voice in, in this. And I just think it's, it's nice. I don't know, nice is the wrong word because this book is very grim. But it's important and I think it's true to read a book where white and black people are not shown to be one big happy family as long as the racists aren't there. Um, And I think that stories do this often to make white people feel better about how things could be or giving them this false sense of reality about what race relationships look like today and why. And I think another person that does this this really well is Angie Thompson in The Hate You Give. Thomas. Thomas, I got it wrong, I'm sorry. Um, I, I think she does that really well in that book as well, showing that dynamic. So some other things that I liked, um, I really liked the dialogue. I enjoyed seeing the camaraderie of the family, um, and just this sense of self-respect that the Logans instill in their children. So we talked about the books, the textbooks. One of the very initial scenes is that Um, little man realizes that the only, he's so excited to have a book, like have a textbook that he can take home and and use in school. And um, he, he gets this book and he realizes that the only reason he has it is because it's in really poor condition. And that's why he can have it as a black child. And he's just outraged by this, does not want the book, is punished because he doesn't want the book. 
Um, but it like you can tell that their parents have just really instilled in them this strong sense of worth and self-respect. And um, I, I just, I really liked that. Um, I also really liked the scene between Cassie and Lily and Jean. So Lily and Jean Sims is Jeremy's sister. Um, Jeremy is the one that, you know, wants to be their friend, wants to walk with them. Lily and Jean, uh, there is a scene in which Cassie does not move off the sidewalk or she bumps Lily and Jean or something. I think they bump into each other. Cassie's asked to apologize. Um, she doesn't. She's humiliated by Lily and Jean's father, really put in her place um, as a black girl. And so it, to get her revenge against Lily and Jean for that whole incident is she befriends her um, by just really being very... Um, like, really just, um, I'm losing my words. She's, like, she makes, she pretends to be her friend so that she can right. learn, in, like, intimate details but about she, Lily and Jean, and she blackmails her. She calls her Ms. Lily and Jean, um, so she learns, oh, yeah, you just told the end of it. I was just trying oh, to I'm sorry. think. That's okay. So, anyway, I think that that scene is really good because Lily and Jean is so confused at how Cassie could have been so nice to her. She says, you were just such a nice girl. And Cassie's so confused as, how did you fall for that trick? And I think um, that whole scene really just shows what can happen when you think that you are just centered in someone else's life fully and that you're you're not entitled to their trust. Because I think or you, like, that... internalize social yes. norms, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so for Lillian Jean, mm -hmm. it's a norm for black people to be subservient to her and to be de deferential to her. Um, and so she perceives that as just, like, niceness. That is, like, common courtesy is that a black person would be um, deferential to me. Um, whereas, like, uh, Cassie, like, to her, that is abnormal because she's not used to to doing that because she's not around white people because it's a segregated society and to her it is degrading which it is mm -hmm. i mean it is like i mean i think from a modern perspective like it's like super degrading and um but i, I just think that it's, it's interesting that like she can't i'm sorry i'm kind of co-opting what you said okay. or what you're saying but she she like lacks the social perspective to understand like why it would even be demeaning to cassie like it's almost just like she just views this as, like, the natural way things are and has no, con like, ability to step out of that normalized mm -hmm. racism. Yeah. And so this book is is hard to read. It's it's really grim, um, especially the ending. And then I I was finishing it late at night. So, Cass like, at the end of the book, Cassie is, like, staying up late to see what happens to TJ. And Stacy, her brother, is there, like, and just a big string of events that would be a long thing to get into. She's worried about not only safety of TJ, but what's going to happen to her brother. So she's like trying to stay up late, figure out what's happening. It gets into the morning. So I felt like I was like weary with her. Like we got to find out what happens. But um, I think that scene is done really well. And I just like seeing that, that scene of, that there's almost a lynching that is happens before you. I've never, I've never read a lynching scene written like that, and you can see how fear and this desire for law and order can lead to murder, you know, and I don't, um, it's, it's not just the KKK picking random black people to terrorize, and I'm not saying that that didn't happen, but this scene just reminds you that we're not removed from this type of violence that can happen when those in power believe that they're superior and someone else's existence is a threat to their comfort and security, it, it leads to the self-righteous violence. And when I was reading that, I just would, was thinking about George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin, and people are still defending George Zimmerman. You know, like we're not all on the same page about what happened there, and he's making money off of murdering a child. And so I think reading But this, he also felt like, he you know... He felt threatened. Yeah, the... the the feeling of being threatened, you know, because of, you know, all these kind of like internalized, you know, ways mm -hmm. that we are, are like, you know, conditioned to feel about like cross-racial encounters. Yeah. So that's, that's what I liked. Good. Yeah. I liked a lot of those same things, but so I'm not going to like, 
repeat everything mm -hmm. that you said. Um, but one, like, I really like this, and this is going to sound like backhanded, um, but this book reads like contemporary YA literature, but like without the things I don't like about contemporary YA literature. So like, there's no love triangle. There's no love. There's no love. <laughs> there's no like shoehorned in love triangle because she's nine years old, right? Right. Like, right. there's no reason to have that. And, like, it's not that, like, love stories can be bad or whatever, but, like, when you... There's been kind of, like, this wave in the last maybe 10 years or so of, like, really socially conscious YA books. Um, you know, like, you mentioned The Hate You Give, and there's other books like that, too. And those are good and valuable um, for for their own, you know, on their own terms. But, like, they are also still very beholden to the tropes of YA literature. Like, that's one of the ways in which you know, you kind of, you kind of have to play the game because it is such a tropey publishing and like niche of the publishing industry. Um, and I'm not saying that like children's literature, like for younger kids, isn't the same, but like, this is kind of like published in like the late seventies when why, like what would become YA is only just beginning to bubble up. And so it doesn't have a lot of those same, like, oh man, well, here's the moment in which her boyfriend's going to do something and she's going to feel betrayed. And oh, here's the moment when they're going to reconcile right before the climax. And like, you know, it's not just boyfriend and girlfriend, but it's also like the specific like tropes of language, right? Like we have Cassie, who's our first person narrator, but she's also not like a first person narrator like you often hear in like contemporary children's literature. Like she's not like... uh She's, she doesn't have, like, attitude, you know? She doesn't have, like, a kind of ironic distance or, like, a lot of those things that are really... She's not, like, telling jokes and stuff, like... And it's not like those things are bad, but it's also, like, presenting things in a sophisticated way that doesn't condescend to your audience. Like, people kind of, like... You know, one of the things people like about YA is it doesn't condescend to teens or whatever, um, which is true, but it's also doing those without, like... I don't know, I guess, like, my personal pet peeves about, like, the, the like, genre... Um, and I think that that's cool. Um, one of the things that I was talking to Rebecca about before we recorded this is that this in a lot of ways reminds me of To Kill a Mockingbird uh, and is in some ways like a foil to that book because they're both set in the 1930s in the Jim Crow South in a fairly rural um, or small town environment. They both feature young girls uh, who like feel like they're about the same age. I don't know how old Scout's supposed to be in To Kill a Mockingbird, but you know, and they're both having like a kind of loss of innocence moment. Um, and in that same way that, like, To Kill a Mockingbird doesn't really condescend to the, like, the perspective of someone who is, who is that young, like, they treat that being that young and honestly being naive, uh, they don't treat that, you know, with disdain or, like, you know, ironic distance. Like, it is, like, a truly sincere, like, coming of age and coming to realize that the world is awful in a lot of ways. Like, that is, like, the lesson of this. And I think people sometimes forget that the lesson of To Kill a Mockingbird is, uh, Scout learns that her dad's, you know, valiant fight to save uh, a black man is doomed to fail because her society is irreparably ugly. Like, that is a big part of To Kill a Mockingbird, too. But I think also, like, in some ways this book feels fresher than To Kill a Mockingbird can sometimes be um, just because of it being actually centered on black experiences. You know, To Kill a Mockingbird is not really about black people even though that's kind of like the central plot, it's it's about a white family. And I'm not saying that there's not value in that, but I mean, this definitely does things that To Kill a Mockingbird wouldn't, wouldn't really dare to do, like um, to, uh, to like present like the lynching of a child. Like, you know, um, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird ends with, with a, a black person being actually killed, you know, which is obviously really traumatizing. But like, this is, I think in a lot of ways, a lot more clear eyed in, Mm -hmm. uh, depicting like the way that racialized violence is indiscriminate, you know, like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Emmett Till and that sort of thing kind of comes to mind. Um, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, I think also, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of move away from the To Kill a Mockingbird book after this, like comparison after this point, but To Kill a Mockingbird is very much like in that mode that you were talking about, Rebecca, of like, there's good white people and bad white people. And I think the book is more complicated than just that dichotomy, but the book definitely like flirts with that dichotomy. So right. you have like, Atticus is like the good, you know, noble white person. And then you have like the, um, I don't remember the name of the family, but they're the, the, the father rapes the daughter and the then the, the Yules. Yeah. Thank you. The father rapes the daughter and the black guy takes the fall. Um, 
like you have that and it's also very class-based right because you know Atticus is a lawyer and they you know are nice and they have a, a maid um and then the Yules are like poor white trash and there's like the implication that like you know sophistication and moral superiority kind of falls a little bit along those class lines and again it's more complicated than that that said this book I think has a much more nuanced sense of like how economics play into like your kind of social behavior and the book's honestly like a little didactic about it at times and maybe we can get to this in like the dislikes um but like the thing that I do like is this book is very conscious of the way that like race and economic class intercede intertwine and like the fact that like all of the conflict or much of the conflict in this book is not just centered around like racial resentment but is also specifically centered around the ownership of property like mm-hmm. feels really important and really savvy um and also, like, the way that um, when the mother is, like, telling, like, the revised history, um, uh, you know, that's not in their textbooks, she grounds a lot of the slavery in the language of economics, like, why slavery existed and how racism was born out of, like, these kind of, this kind of, like, economic hierarchy that was created through slavery. Um, and I think that that's really interesting and nuanced uh, in a way that is, like, very rare to see mm-hmm. in books about racism is, like, this explicit, like, talk of the intertwining of of uh, economics with it. Um, and I think mean, that's cool. Um, I think also just on a, just, like, less of a thematic level, but, like, more of just a, a kind of craft, like, it's really fun and engaging to encounter a children's book that is this complex like on plot level and I mean I think that this it's a nice change of pace right a lot of children's literature is justifiably and you know it's fine for children's literature to be fairly simple in terms of like what happens mm-hmm. you know because you know you're writing for you know people who are still learning how the world works and but this book is not simple at all like this book is mm-hmm. like has the complexity of a book that you would be geared toward adults and I do think that this is like there's an interesting thing in children's literature is that quote unquote children's literature can be for a person who is six years old, or it can be for a person who is 13 years old. Right. And there's a big difference mm-hmm. cognitively, you know, and just kind of like understanding of the world with this. And this is definitely for like older children, but at the same time, like it is still like laudably complex mm-hmm. for like being like quote unquote like just children's literature i'm not like i mean there's a lot of really great children's literature but they don't usually aspire to be this like narratively intricate and this is very narratively intricate and i like that and there's also no this is a complaint that we've had about a few of the books we've read so far i don't feel like there's any loose ends of this plot like everything that you're given is resolved not necessarily resolved but you understand why She's going in they a all eventually have a purpose is. that yeah. ties in so while there are so many different things going on at once and you're you're reading this from the perspective of a nine year old like she she has her characters tell their story well you know i I think yeah and it is it's very satisfying in that way like when you get to the end of the book like as like um like really awful and depressing and just brutal the end of the book is which it is like it is not a happy ending at all like that's another thing too you very rarely see or at least i very rarely see children's literature that ends like with almost zero uplift like there is the only uplift is that he didn't get lynched Mm -hmm. but the crops are burned and uh you know the guy's in jail tj's in jail and will probably stay there for the rest of his life and he'll probably be he'll probably be legally he'll probably be murdered by the state you know instead of murdered by vigilantes um So, like, as nauseating as it is to see those pieces falling into place, to see, like, there is no good ending possible in this. Like, you know, that kind of becomes apparent before the end of the book. It's Mm -hmm. like a tragedy in that sense. Um, At the same time, it is very dramatically satisfying, like, as a reader to see those things, like, fall into place and for you to be like, oh, this is why we spent so much time with this character. Or, oh, this is why they talked about that earlier in the book. Like, it really pays off that sort of stuff that is very fun like fun fun not in the sense of like what the like what is happening but fun in the sense of as a reader it is rewarding mm-hmm. uh just on a just technical level yeah um so anyway i mean we can keep talking about like what's what we like about this book because i think it's obvious both you and i really like it yeah. but we've also been doing this podcast for 45 minutes <laughs> now so maybe we need to 
pivot. Uh, I, did, was there anything you didn't like about this I book? I don't really have any critiques of this book. There is something I would like more of, but it's not the kind that kind of book. Like, I, I wish that I could have seen more character development, but this is not that kind of book. You know, like you mentioned To Kill a Mockingbird, you do see Scout's character really develop in that. But this book has so much going on. It's not too much. Like, it's all... It all works very well together, but it's not a book where you're going to see a lot of character development. It's very plot-heavy, which, again, not really a critique of the book, just something I enjoy in books. But I will say she wrote several books about this whole family, so you probably get that, you know, in, in more books. And I do, um, I'm eager to read more about the Logan family and in her other novels because um, I think she's a really good author, but that's really the only... I don't even think you can call that a dislike, but only, you know, yeah. Yeah, I think, like, for me, it's kind of something similar. And in a way, this is, like, an unfair critique because it's not the book it's trying to be. But, like, this is very much like a social real, like a book of social realism. And, like, almost like like Stephen Crane or Jack London or that sort of thing where there right. is, like, a very... um very naturalist, very, like, literal, um, like, relationship to, like, physical reality and, like, kind of social reality as well. And it is, like, the point of this book is very clear and there's a very, like, well-defined, like, I mean, if you want to call it, the thesis sounds too academic for what this book is, but you read it and you understand, like, what the point is, like, what, what we're trying, what it's trying to teach you about society, um, and as Rebecca and I have both talked about, we think that that's like really valuable, like what it does. But at the same time, again, this is not in the book. It's it's not trying like that's what it's trying to be, and it achieves that. But if I'm talking about like my personal preference, like I do enjoy a little bit more like lyricism in books, and like I think about like this is not a 100% fair comparison because again, these authors are doing completely different things. But if I think about like other books about race and race relations that I consider, like, really, um, important and, like, meaningful, um, a lot of them, the ones that I've personally gravitated toward, have, like, some sort of element of, like, unknown or element of profundity to them that, like, I think this book never aspires to, so, like, if you think about, again, it's not really fair, this is not trying to be magical realist or anything like that, like this is, but if you think of, like, the work of Toni Morrison, um, Toni Morrison hits a lot of these same ideas while also having this sense of like wonder and like mystery in the book that like this book never aspires to. And just as a personal preference as a reader, there is a, there is a kind of like ceiling on how much I enjoy a book that is like purely like social realism mm -hmm. and that doesn't get into these kind of like more ineffable or sublime elements of like the human experience and again this book doesn't aspire to be that and so it's a little bit unfair to say that like well this is something that's wrong with the book right. but you know as a reader it's just personal it's, preference yeah it's right like this feels very much like like if you read like um like I don't know if you had to read these Rebecca in like your AP literature classes or whatever but like when we talk about like social realism in like the late 19th century which is like Stephen Crane and stuff and it's like books that are like very like dedicated to showing you like this is how a strata of society lives mm -hmm. and they're like almost educational this is kind of in that tradition mm -hmm. and I don't think that that's a bad thing but it's not always my like favorite right. mode of literature right yeah that said this is like a really good version of that and, um, a, and, and a version that I cannot iterate this enough but it's just a version that as a white person I have not heard enough of you know yeah and I will say like uh I don't remember if I've mentioned this on the podcast or not and I don't even know if we have podcast listeners who are not like personally friends or family with us so like <laughs> maybe this is just redundant for listeners but like so I teach high school English and in a public high school in in, in Tennessee and I this is the sort of book that would be tricky mm -hmm. to teach in a public high school in Tennessee. And it's not that it's not done. Like, I, this is a really commonly assigned book. Like, that's why I knew that this book existed is because I had, like, 
I had never been assigned it myself, but I was aware that like, oh, this is like one of those, it's kind of like a book we'll probably read later on in this podcast, like Johnny Tremaine or something Mm -hmm. like that. It's like, it's one of those that kind of like circulates to the kind of like upper elementary or like middle school curriculum. Um, But like, especially recently, it's become very, like Tennessee has become a real hostile environment in public schools for openly talking about race. And they'll say like, you can still talk about race, um, but then they'll put stipulations on it. You have to present both sides. You have to present both sides. You can't present, like, you can't talk about privilege. You can't talk about um, that uh, the United States has, like, written into its laws, like, at the beginning, like, things that were racist. Like, you can't, or, or if you do talk about those things, you can't get into them with a lot of detail. Um, and, like, specifically in 2021, uh like basically in re- in response to a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, there was a pretty reactionary bill that passed in, in the state of Tennessee that like limited the discussion of oppression, like oppressed groups um, in a public school setting. Uh, and those would, and, and I, you know, you can read these characteristics and think like, well, I would never teach something like that. Um, but what's, you know, like for instance, an individual's moral character is determined by an individual's race or sex. Like, I don't think many teachers, if any teachers, are going and being like, I'm going to make these kids know that white people are bad. Um, but what's happened is that as a result of this law being passed, it's opened the door for people to make complaints and allegations against teachers uh, because the stories that they tell are perceived as having said white people are bad. Um, so like a, real, like a really early complaint once this law was passed um, was that... Um, was against a biography of Martin Luther King that was taught to like third graders or something like that. And the simple act of showing white people oppressing Martin Luther King, which I mean like white people treated Martin Luther King very badly. They killed him eventually, you know, like this is inescapable that like there's a lot of very bad treatment of Martin Luther King Jr. by white people. And you can't tell the story of him, his life without getting into that. But what some parents perceive that as is a violation of this, um, this law because uh, to show white people oppressing black people was to imply that white people are bad, like fundamentally bad because of their race. And you don't have to say that, but the like, I'm sure the teacher didn't say that, or I hope the teacher didn't say that because that's not the you know lesson to take out of that you know the story of Martin Luther King Jr. But by presenting oppression, people have internalized that as a critique of their identity mm-hmm. and a critique of them morally. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very telling that we can't even tell the history without some people feeling like we're attacking an identity broadly. Um, and In all no that time. is to say, I think that that kind of proves that a story like this is is helpful. Like, mm-hmm. you know, To Kill a Mockingbird goes, for the most part, unchallenged by... Uh, you know, the kind of white people who push back against Martin Luther King's history, right? The pushback to kill Mockingbird gets is because it's not progressive enough for the, basically. Um, but a book like this, um, which doesn't have the same sort of centering of the white perspective would be criticized from like that same perspective as like the Martin Luther King biography, right? When you like foreground the experiences of people of color, uh, and the oppression that they have faced usually by white people, usually by people who are, you know, wealthier landowning in some way. Um, people perceive that as an attack against whiteness. Um, mm-hmm. And it makes it really difficult to teach, text, to teach texts like this, uh, which I think indicates that a text like this is really important to exist, even though it's, you know, 40 years old. And even though it's written for middle schoolers or things like that. Like if I taught this to my high schoolers, I don't know that I would get pushback, but I could imagine the pushback that I would get. Yeah. You were going to say something a second ago. No, I was just going to say that, um, just thinking about this book was written in the seventies and we're having all these conversations and seeing this now, Mildred Taylor speaks a lot about this, about why the story is important. And, you know, some of the pushback that this book got when it was published is very different than what it would get now. But I just, I just think it's important. Um, I don't know. It's kind of 
it's not even prophetic because she was seeing it happen in her day, but like she just speaks to a lot of these things that we're saying just in her foreword about why the story is important. And it might make people uncomfortable. It might, um, but, but that, that is so important to know your history, even if it's uncomfortable. And so I just, I appreciate that she is saying those things that we're seeing play out right now like we're not just talking about things in the past we're talking about what's happening right in front of us right and that's what i mean if you go to the like the law that i was just referring in tennessee that's what they don't want you to talk about um they say that you can talk about in a historical context how groups have been oppressed in the past but what makes people uncomfortable and what people don't want to like and what this law if, if you take it in aggregate kind of precludes is this idea that like oppression and racism and um like you know hierarchy in society are ongoing systemic issues rather than simply something we fixed in the past and i think that it's worth talking about that like you know in 1977 when this was published like that was less than 10 years after martin luther king was assassinated you know that was not even 20 years after uh you know it was like 12 was it 12 yeah i guess 12 years after like the the civil rights act of 1965 was passed you know Mm -hmm. Um, less than, it was like five years after like uh, the kind of COINTELPRO surveillance um, of like the civil rights uh, movement by the FBI mm-hmm. um, and frankly like the intentional sabotage of the civil rights movement by the FBI was uncovered, right? Like the stuff that she's talking about, about like the Jim Crow South, like at the time she was writing, it was barely history. Mm-hmm. Um, even though this is set in the 30s, obviously, like, decades before that, like, a lot of those, like, social structures were legal until less than, ten, you know, less than 20 years before this was written. And those social structures didn't go away once they became illegal, right? Mm-hmm. They, it takes a long time to work those things out of your societies, and sometimes your society never successfully um, works them out. You know, we still have, you know, racial inequalities today. We still have things that are motivated by racism. We still have... Um, you know, unequal outcomes in schools, uh, unequal resources in schools that oftentimes fall along racial lines. And, you know, I think by setting this in the past, it maybe is making it a little bit sneakier or more palatable because Mm -hmm. you can view it as, well, that was the past. But a lot of these same things still happen. You know, we live in a neighborhood that, you know, um, is... For, for Knoxville, where we live, like, the quote-unquote, like, black part of town, right? I mean, Knoxville is not a very diverse place in terms of race. But, like, you know, for, for the city, this is, like, an area that has, you know, for the past several decades been, like, considered, like, you know, where black people live. And what's happening is uh, a lot of families are finding out that, you know, they didn't, you know, because they don't own the houses that they live in, because they've been renting from people, um they don't have control over their future, right? As their rents rise, um, as gentrification happens, you know. uh, And so, like, this idea of, like, property being a proxy Mm -hmm. for racial inequality, like, it still happens today, you know, even if we're not sharecropping, you know, we still have, you know, issues with that. You know, the black part of town can become the white part of town, you know, if the landowners decide that it will become so. Or at least the black part of town can become the quote-unquote rich part of town if the landowners decide that it is so. And, um, yeah, anyway. So a lot to unpack here. <laughs> lot, lots to unpack. Um, it's, yeah, so I definitely give this book a thumbs up. I do too, you know, as, as much as I was, ne- I don't know if it sounded negative, but, you know, as much as I was maybe saying it's not exactly my cup of tea for a book, it is, like, very good at the things that it's trying to do, and I think it was good. So thumbs mm-hmm. up for me as well and um i do it did leave me really i think i mentioned this but i i do want to read more about the logan family especially considering that she writes up until civil rights um and and talks about the family moving to toledo and all of that so i think that's really exciting yeah so well so i guess that wraps up our conversation on roll of thunder hear my cry um next time we are going to be moving into the 80s, and we are going to be reading another book that Rebecca and I have, none, neither of us have read. Um, we're going to be reading 1980s Newbery Medal winner called A Gathering of Days, colon, A New England Girl's Journal by uh, Joan Bloss. Is that how you pronounce her last name? It looks good to me. One, one other little bit of trivia I will say about this book that we found out. This Roll of Thunder? Yeah. As okay. we were researching is that 
there was actually a television movie adaptation made of this in 1978 that has Morgan Freeman in it. So I mean, you want to see a little baby Morgan Freeman? I don't know how much of a baby he is. I don't know. We'll have to watch it. I wonder what see. role he plays. We'll see if we can get it somewhere. But anyway, just if you're interested. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, so yeah, next time we'll be in the 80s reading A Gathering of Days, a New England Girls Journal. I don't know what that book's like. I've never heard of it, honestly, before <laughs> you got it from the library. So um, fingers crossed on, on that being more exciting than the title. <laughs> Maybe it'll pull an upper road slowly. And, Probably. <laughs> But anyway, so this has been the Newberry Chronicles. Um, I keep forgetting to say this at the end of the episodes, but we've got an email address. Uh, feel free to email us at newberrychronicles at gmail.com. Um, or is it the Newberry Chronicles? Regardless, uh, feel free to email us. Um, it is simply newberrychronicles at gmail.com. I just checked. Um, we'd love to hear feedback. Um, and yeah, that's that's it. So thanks for listening. This is... This is now our longest episode yet. Um, it's two, just two white people talking about racism. Yeah, you know. You know what the world needs. Right. Need more more white people talking about race. That's, yeah. all, that's what I got to say. <laughs> I agree. And on that note, let's end. So thanks for listening, everybody. Bye.